The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the Law Offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue Ballou, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So how's the uh, uke practice going? You're playing the uke now. I was just practicing just before. <laughs> no, were you on. really? I practice every day. You're getting good at the ukulele? Well, I'm, you know, I've learned, uh, you know, I, I have to look at the music a little bit. The only song I could play without looking at any chords is um, You Are My Sunshine. You Are My Sunshine. Well, that's very nice. And uh, I've learned, and I have to look at the chords, but um, can't stop, can't help falling in love with you. The uh, oh, Elvis song. I can't help falling in love with you on the uke. On the uke, and now I'm working on um, Bob Dylan's "Blowing in the Wind." Nice. Now, do you and Tom, your husband, play uke together? Do you do like a little duet sort of situation? He actually said to me the other day, <laughs> "I brought the ukulele into the living room." Yeah. And sometimes he plays in the living room. Okay. And I and I don't care if. Like if I'm doing something in the living room or in the kitchen, right, plays, right, I kind of like it. You know, he said to me, "This is a no ukulele zone from now on." <laughs> so if we want to play, we have to go in either of our offices or in the travel trailer. Now, so do you, are are you going to do like dueling ukes at some point? We could. I mean, I mean, I think at some point. We'll we'll probably uh, go on the road. Are you going to set up on uh, on Santa Monica on the uh, promenade with a little hat out in front and your plan? I should. I haven't been working. It would come in handy. You know the song, the good uke song is uh, somewhere over the rainbow. Like is? Do you know that version? I don't. Oh God, you got to look that up. It's all uke. Oh. Yeah, it's it's by a guy named Iz. I forget the whole name, but if you search I Z, it'll come up. And his version of somewhere over the rainbow awesome he blends it with what a wonderful world oh so the okay. two songs go together it's really really cool hey okay. what do you think of my uh hoodie well, it's not a hoodie it's kind of a quarter zip it's really nice and and i actually wanted to take a picture of this guy but it would have been weird because then he would be like why are you taking my picture i was at the driving range the other day yeah and i was walking to my car and there's a there's a cafe there so people were sitting outside and this guy was wearing one of the shirts that you wear all the time. Is that right? Yeah. You know, they're from Sunday Swagger, sundayswagger.com. They're my official clothing, does not clothing designer, clothing provider. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, sure. That's what it is. All right. So I, I wanted to, we got a great guest coming up, Brian Helgeland, who, of course, won the Oscar for LA Confidential. He's got a brand new movie called Finest Kind. We'll talk to him about that. Um, you know, Sue, this is something you probably don't know about me. I was once buried alive. You did it for a radio promotion, right? I did. I did. Have we talked about it? I think I don't know if we talked about it on on our show, but you've talked to me about it. And you were, it was it to raise money for something? Yeah, or? it was to raise money for the uh, Toledo Public Schools back in the day. So I came across this guy named Mr. Beast. Do you know Mr. Beast? Mm-mm. He's the single most followed person on YouTube. Wow. Uh, and he was buried alive for a week and had 57 million views. He says it caused him mental agony, which I'm not surprised by. Um, by the way, this guy earns three to $5 million a month in ad revenue on his YouTube um, account. Is because, that crazy? He buried it because he buried himself alive? Or well, just, this is one of the this things. This is one of his shtick things. That yeah, he he's okay. always got a bit. Like uh, there was another one. Where was the other bit? Um, is it, it always like danger? It's it's danger, but it's, sometimes it's really nice stuff. Sometimes he does really nice stuff, <laughs> although he does stupid stuff. Like apparently he once counted from one to 100,000 on his YouTube channel and got a ton of views. How long did it take him to do that? I have no idea, but how could it possibly be interesting? One, yeah. two, three, see you I mean, at 100,000. I've, I've heard of people saying 
they could read the phone book and I'd be interested, but listening to someone Somebody count? count? Yeah. I no. don't know. So when I was buried alive, let me I'll lay it out for you. He was buried alive for a week. I was buried alive for 48 hours. So here's how it worked. For 48 hours before I got buried, no food and no drink. So <laughs> exactly <laughs> before burial. So by the time I get to burial, I haven't eaten or drank anything in two days. So they put me in the ground, just like a regular coffin. They dug a hole. Throw dirt on you? Had a coffin, had dirt thrown on me. There was like a an air tube that went up to the surface. And you could actually look down at me. There was also a camera inside the coffin. So when people came to the event, uh, the, the burial, the buried alive thing, they could actually watch me on a camera inside the coffin. I did my show from inside the coffin. I was doing mornings at that point. I did two morning shows from inside the coffin. Did you sleep at all? The only Could you way sleep? I the only way I slept was on the last night. I said, you know what? I'm not gonna make it. I am not gonna make it. Uh, you're either gonna have to dig me up or drop a bottle of NyQuil down here. And so well, they every, but you were but you were monitored the whole time. Oh right? yeah, no, people were oh. making sure. But I was like, it was up to me. If I wanted to It was to come up to you up, if you wanted up. to stop it. Okay. So I said, send me a bottle of NyQuil. So they send a bottle of NyQuil. I chugged the entire thing. I slept all night. That's what got me through. NyQuil will knock you out like crazy. Um and uh I survived it. And when they dug me up, there were a thousand people there, and it was it was a really cool event. But and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. I wouldn't do it again. I can't imagine doing it for a week. I'm so claustrophobic. I could never do it. Yeah, it's it's insane. I went into a deprivation tank once. Where you you, you float in the water? Where you float in the water. It's like a coffin. It's like a tanning bed with water. Right. And the water is exactly 98.6 degrees. So you feel like you're floating in the middle of nowhere. You feel like you're floating. And uh, I did it when I was living in New York um, before I had moved out here. And... um, the thing, you know, you, you, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I yeah. mean, you, there really is a sense of calm. They're monitoring you. Um, at some point, I definitely like dozed off. But the thing is, is that it's, I did it in, in, in the city. Right. So you walk out, you're feeling like so calm, everything's lovely. And then you walk out and it's like, hey, asshole, you know, Wham, it's like, <laughs> the city hits you, <laughs> you know, you hear <laughs> cars honking, you know, fire engines, people there yelling all that at each zen. other. Completely erased all the zen. Yeah, yeah. God, I, I've done that. It's it's really. It does feel like you're just sort of floating in because there's salt in the water. So and you can't really tell you're in. It's it's an interesting experience. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I don't know if you heard this or not, Sue, mm. but uh, Snoop gave up smoke. Do you okay. know this story? All right. So I posted something on Facebook okay. when it first came out, and I said, "What." Is the world coming to, you know, Snoop is not going to be smoking weed anymore. Yes. And then I saw that it was just a ruse for some a fire pit company. A fire pit company. Yeah. Called Solo Stove. Now I'm, I am going to get one of these things. I think the product is really cool, but I thought it was a genius marketing thing because the original post where he said, I'm giving up smoke. He said, uh, Please respect my privacy during this difficult time. And I'm like, oh, God, he really is quitting. Yeah, and yeah, in, yeah. And instead, he comes out with this uh, smoke-free solo stove, which is like a home fire pit. I told our sales department, go go sign these guys up. I will advertise, endorse. I mean, it's a killer deal. But I thought a great piece of marketing. Oh, absolutely. Do, do you remember years ago, he tried to convince Cadillac to come up with a new model Cadillac called Snoop DeVille? No, really. Yes. Snoop DeVille. Well, some of this stuff works like, okay, so the, this is the Snoop fire pit. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got the Snoop Skechers now. Right. Have you seen those? Like, no, he, no. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're Snoop design Skechers. What, meaning what? Oh, they're, what? What do they look like? Uh, they've got his little logo on them. His little pot, weed, whatever that he's thing is. He's got his weed logo. His weed logo. So you if you want to walk around with, you probably don't run very fast. In no, pro- probably takes your time. <laughs> probably just flop on the couch, <laughs> put on my sketchers and go to sleep. <laughs> I've been thinking, by the way, since, since this is a podcast and I can say whatever I want, I've been thinking about giving up smoking. Oh, 
and for health reasons, like your throat and stuff, or I or, mean, or the hot or the high. You don't want the high. Oh no, I definitely want the high. <laughs> I definitely want that part of it. What I don't want is the anymore the inhaling and the that burning sensation and all that. I have stuff. to get you one of those little bubblers. The water pipe, the portable water pipe. Oh yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll I'll mail it to you. Oh yeah, mail it to me. Because I turned a lot of people onto to it, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, thanks so much!" Because there's water, so you're not getting water it's in your mouth. Smoother. It's much smoother, and you're you know right. coughing. Oh, that's nice. Is it a bong? It's like a mini bong. It's a mini bong. It's like this big. Oh yeah, I'll definitely try that. Oh, I Because otherwise, I'm going to go straight up edibles. Yeah, I don't know about the edible, you know, and, and you know what I'm really, uh, and I, this is a, a lesson learned. Okay. I think I told you I went to the improv, uh, 60th anniversary. Yes. Yes. Okay. I told you, did I told you that I got very stoned when I was there? No, God, no. So, you know, pot these days is so, is so potent. Yes. You know, and I, I always sound like the old time, but I remember, you know, when I was a kid and I smoked pot, I could smoke an entire joint by myself and I'd Been be there. fine. Yeah, been there. And the pot was good. It mm-hmm. just wasn't as strong as it is now. You're, it's like one hit. If you right. dare to take two, forget about it. So I'm at this party. It's at the improv. Yep. It's like indoor, outdoor. I'm most, mostly in the outdoor section. Yeah. And I, you know, someone had a joint and I took a couple of hits. And like 10 minutes later, I was so high. Really? Like scary high. Like oh. it was really, really not fun. And um, I was designated driver with Tom. Oh my God, you're designated driver? Yeah. And and when, when we left, I said, I, I don't think I could drive. And he had a couple of drinks, so he didn't want to drive. And he said, you got to be kidding me. And I thought we were going to get into like a big fight about it. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm designated driver, but I've never just taken a couple of hits of pot and not been able to drive. Yeah, right. So um, I said, all right, well, wait, I'll wait, I'll get in the car and I'll sit in the driver's seat and I'll drink some water. Oh, and God. If I could drive, I'll drive. And I looked at him and I said, there's no way I could drive. Really? So he had a, and he was fine. Yeah, he was okay. Yeah. So last night I'm at, a, at someone's house and I took a couple of hits, not as strong as this other pot, yeah. but it was really strong. And then a friend of mine was telling me he read that some weed is laced with fentanyl. Well, really? Yes. No. Now, I would think at dispensaries, you know, most of these dispensaries have a grow operation. Yes, they do. In the place. Right. And a lot oh. of these are really, I mean, you know, to go into it, a lot of these are really reliable brands. I mean, like mm-hmm. the Wild brand is really good. The Camino mm-hmm. brand is really good. I mean, there are things that you could try, but the fentanyl thing is scary as hell. That's really, really scary. That, so, people are dying when they do a snort of blow because there's fentanyl in it. Right. So I'm I'm just not going to smoke anybody else's weed because a lot of people smoke sativa. I don't like sativa. I don't like sativa it's, either. It's too uppity. I like the indica. Um, I mean, indica, it, it gives me a great high. I, I laugh just as much or more yep. because I'm not paranoid. And uh, and sometimes I, I'll take a couple of hits before I go to bed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Um, yeah, I... I the smoking thing, the problem with edibles is you eat one and then you wait yeah. and you're like, I want, I don't want to eat another one till I know this one has hit. Right. And sometimes you misjudge it and you take the other one and then you're like, bam, slammed. Too much. It's very, very complicated. All Weird. right. Well, I'm going to buy you the bubbler. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I definitely want a bubbler. Okay. Um, all of that in advance of our guest. I'm sure. <laughs> Very well, I interesting. I wonder if he has a bug. He may have a bubbler. You know, he may. Know. He may. Uh, our guest today has written movies like Clint Eastwood's Mystic River, Man on Fire, starring Denzel Washington and Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale. He won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for the film noir classic L.A. Confidential. Since then, he's written and directed the Jackie Robinson biopic 42 and Legend, starring Tom Hardy. His latest film is called Finest Kind, starring Ben Foster, Toby Wallace, Jenna Ortega and Tommy Lee Jones. It will make its premiere on Paramount Plus starting December the 15th. Brian Helgeland joins us. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. So congratulations on the movie. I I loved it. Great cast, Ben Foster, Toby Wallace. Uh, And you take us into this world, which I guess is your hometown in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, Describe sort of 
how this fits into your life. Who are you in the story? Uh, Tell us about sort of the origins. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm, I grew up in that town, went to high school there and, um, went to the same high school, uh, Jenna Ortega references in the movie. Um, and my dad, it's a commercial, you know, set in the, the backdrop is commercial fishing. And my grandfather was a commercial fisherman. My uncles, my dad, uh, he had a issue with his back and he had to move on from, from doing that. But when I was a kid, my earliest memory is dropping my dad off at the dock, to, uh, you know, see you in a week. Hmm. Um, and that was all the stories around the house were all fishing stories and storms and barroom fights that, that my great uncle had had. And when I got out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, not even close. And uh, I didn't want to break the streak since Helglands had been to sea for a couple of hundred years. So I went fishing. And uh, I fished for a year and a half um, before I ended up going to film school. Um, and this was one of the first scripts I ever wrote. Uh, when I, I wrote it when I was 28 hmm. and, and oh, directed wow. it when I was 60. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's unbelievable. Because I, I also, I read that, um, so the movie had a different cast originally. What was that in like night? <laughs> What twenty twenty eighteen was that? Yeah. Well, it's had it's had different casts. Let me put it this way: the first person attached to play a part in it was Heath Ledger. Um, wow. Oh wow. So, uh, so that that's how long it's been around. So it's it's had different incarnations, and just it it basically um, it just couldn't get put together for one reason or another until this uh, incarnation now. So were there were there a few rewrites over the years to get to this place, or yeah, did you not, pretty much keep it the way? Yeah, you, you originally. I pretty, yeah, I pretty much kept it the way it, the way it was. Um, and it's fishing boats that have never really, you know, everything they do is still the same as they as they did it back in um, when I wrote the script and when I fished. So nothing really needs to be updated, and the relationships are all father and son and uh brothers and things like that so nothing really nothing really had to they weren't tech guys so i didn't have to rewrite it i just want to ask you a question do i do fish today are you do are you a fishing guy are you done like even no i'm not no i i don't understand uh recreational fishing because it's if it's not coming in hundreds of pounds at a time i don't understand the point of it so um, if you're not making money and 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 you're hauling around bags of it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I just I want to share with you real quick a story. Um, I go down to Florida a lot. My husband's in-laws live there, and one of uh, my brother-in-laws, his brother-in-law, he has a, a a big fishing boat, and they invited me to come for the day. And right. and none of the wives were going on the boat, and I kind of seemed a little odd. I was like, oh, okay, maybe they just don't, they're not interested. And like, I like being on the water. So right. I'm on the boat and I see um, a little baseball bat, like a little wooden bat. Right. And I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan, right? <laughs> and I just had mentioned, oh, that's so cute. The little bat, it's so cute, you know? And they were, um, uh, sail- I guess they were, um, there wasn't sailfish. It's, um, oh God, what's um, the fish? has like- Marlin? Like, Marlin. It, was a, it, it was a fish that had like- Swordfish? Like, or- swordfish, it was swordfish. Yeah. okay. So, um, they, all of a sudden, like they're going crazy. They're reeling it in, they're reeling it in. And when, as it comes on the boat, they take that baseball bat and, and start pounding and, and, and beating it and beating it until it, it dies. Right? right. And I'm like, I'm on the boat and I'm like, I'm just like, thought I was there for like this nice, like day out on the ocean, you know? And I just looked at him. I was like, what are you doing? I said, I feel like I'm, I'm like fishing with the mob. This is insane. <laughs> what are you doing? And uh, right. they said that they do it because the sword will rip up the boat. Right. It like, thrashes around. And, yeah. Sure. It was horrific. <laughs> and, I've ne- and I've never, ever been, have anything to do with fishing ever since. Or, or ate swordfish. See, now I, I grew up, I grew up fishing. My family grew up fishing. I, we fished for salmon. We fished for uh, perch and Lake Erie. We dipped for smelt. 
you ever hear right. of that dipping for smelt where you get those little fish with a net? Um, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm wondering though, what what was the average day like when you were actually at sea? Well, it's, so it's a deep sea. We, I was on a uh, I was a scallop fisherman, um, which sounds like you're walking along the shore looking for scallops that have washed up. But it's deep sea scallops, and it can be a hundred miles offshore. And you're out there for 10 days at a time. Um, and, a, and a typical day, you work in a double shift of six hours on and six hours off. So you get up at six in the morning and work till noon, then sleep, then get up at six in the afternoon and work till midnight or mm. the midnight to six. Um, so it's the strange, you sleep twice a day. And... Uh, it's a, it's a, but you, once you get into that rhythm, it, it's kind of cool, but the, you work so hard that you can eat, you just eat like a maniac to, and don't gain a, an ounce, but you, yeah. you know, we're probably eating, eating 10,000 calories a day Wow! and all you do is work and eat and sleep. <clears throat> so, and were you like the Toby Wallace character? Did, were you like college boy? I think I'll yeah. go fish. Yeah, I was, uh, I got, I I graduated with an English degree. I couldn't get a job. And when I went fishing, I just was down on the docks going from one boat to the next asking, you know, if they needed anybody and just getting a lot of head shakes and get lost and that kind of and worse. And, um, and then finally I got on a boat and I, I desperately didn't want anyone to know that I had gone to college, you know, um, <laughs> but I wasn't going to lie. So you know, you very quickly get referred to as college boy and all that. Not bad for a college boy. And oh, you oh, okay, yeah, we didn't think a college boy could do this. And God, you captured so, I, so much of that in the movie. So much of that is like dead on the money with what you're describing right now. Yeah, yeah. So that that part of the Toby Wallace character is is from that experience. Um, um, but by the same token, the Jenna Ortega character, Mabel. Um, is is me in a sense also as far as growing up in that town and sensing that there's a bigger world out there because um, I actually went to college locally also I went to uh, the local state school and uh, and knowing there's feeling there's a bigger world out there and wanting to figure out how to reach it somehow but having no sense of how to do it and really very few role models of how to do it so I kind of put myself into both those characters. So I, I get seasick badly. Did you ever get seasick? Yeah, I got, uh, um, I didn't get seasick until, I don't know how, how graphic you want to hear a story, but I didn't get seasick till about six months I had been fishing. And I was very really? proud. I had, yeah, I had never been seasick. And one trip I had to go cook. <clears throat> and uh, I got up, it, it was on the way out, so everyone on the boat was asleep. And uh, I got up at 3.30 in the morning and I had to make a, start making bacon. And I ha we had this like a huge industrial pan covered in eight packs of bacon for everybody. And I felt a little strange and um, I went out on deck and felt better and I had to flip the bacon over and I came in and opened the oven and the bacon smell hit me. And I basically just, I threw up in my mouth, but I, I mean, I kept my mouth closed because right. I have to clean it, right? If I, <laughs> and I run out on deck and I'm on deck on my hands and knees, just heaving my guts out. And I hear, uh, and the deck's washed with water and everything. And I'm finally just like panting and like, I've completely emptied my stomach and stuff's hanging from my face. And I hear this sound and I look up and the captain is in his underwear watching me as he pees on deck <laughs> and I look up at him and he looks down at me and uh, he says, what's for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and I said, blueberry pancakes. And he said, finest kind. And he went and disappeared up the ladder. to the Okay. I'm glad you met. So, so finest kind, that term is a little, yeah. it made me think of like Donnie Brasco, like forget about it. It can right. mean a bunch of different things. Finest kind can mean a bunch of different things. Ta explain yeah. that. Well, in that case, it was, th that, that was my, that's as much sympathy as I was going to get. It was like, okay, you're okay if you're still cooking. But finest kind can mean 
it's strictly a nautical uh, kind of a, a fishing term or a nautical term, but it can mean anything. It's like the guy says in the movie, it's the Swiss Army knife of words. It can be go to hell. It can be get lost. It can be that's great. It can mean suit yourself. Um, it, it just, it's all in the attitude and the context that someone says it. Um, mm. So it can mean anything really good, bad, or indifferent. Um, and uh, I heard it a lot growing up and um, didn't, but never really quite understood what it meant till I, I started fishing. And then it became more apparent, but um it's a mystery word in a way. Um, so the movie is, is um, taken from your life. Is there, is there anything else in the film that's from your life? Well, I, mean, I, 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 mean, I, know, I know we don't want to give away stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I put a lot of all the guys in the crew in the movie are based on, on guys that I fished with and not even, uh, they're not even composites. They're in, they're, you know, the guy who's Costa was a guy named Costa who uh, I just wrote him. And, um, but there's some, you know, there's some Tommy Lee Jones talks about his, uh, I don't, he has cancer in the movie and his line about his cancer, he, he thought he had an ulcer and he said, um, you know, I, I, I found out it was stomach cancer and he said, I guess I can stop eating those tums. Hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. I had an uncle named Chris, and that's what my uncle Chris said when he found out he had stomach cancer. He said, I can stop eating tums, I guess. Yeah. Save some, yeah. And um, one of, one of, there's a scene in a donut shop, and Tommy Lee has a, a line in that scene, which is the last thing my dad ever said to me before he died, um, which is, he says, there's a man outside waiting for us, and he's pretty rough. And that's, that's the last thing my dad said to me. Wow. So there's things like that. Um, but just the experience of Toby Wallace entering this world and trying to figure it out and find his place in it and being charged up in, uh, about it in a way it's feeling like he's on an adventure and that's how I felt when I, when I fished so I, I want to ask about some of your other work if that's cool yeah so LA Confidential Absolute classic. So my favorite movie of all time has always been Chinatown and LA Confidential is the very next best right. thing. So you adapted the James Elroy novel. How much is in the book and how much comes from your head? You know, it's interesting because that book is I, I something like 600 pages long. Mm. Um, and to give us some context, there's not one serial killer in that book there's two serial killers in that book and there's none in the movie so it was stripping away stuff hmm. but always staying true to those characters always staying true to Elroy's characters um, the three main cops and you had to change stuff and you had, you had to do things just to, to wrangle it and get it into shape to make a movie out of it because a movie is a completely different beast and structure but the goal was to always stay true to who those guys were in the book. And generally, if you do that, you're, you, you can stay true to the book and the thematics of the book and still have a lot of leeway to change things. It's when you start to change who they are in the movie from who they were in the book. So, yeah, and it was a lot of work and a lot of some invention and some bridges and things like that. But that was the... the uh, thrust behind it when when you're adapting a book uh do you do you have a develop a relationship with the author i mean did you hang out with james elroy and talk yeah. to him about what you were doing and and he was on board and all of that i mean yeah not um not as i was working the odd thing was is i was a big fan of his and he had a book out um it was the big nowhere which is a great great book it, it, it would make a great movie if anyone ever did it and he had a book signing on hollywood boulevard at a bookstore and i had never been to a book signing and i had never asked anyone for their autograph but i was enamored with his writing and i went and there were three people there at this thing and uh he signed the first two books and the place is empty and then he signed mine and i started talking to him about blood on the moon the book that was based on uh 
his book, um, Suicide Hill, I think. No, uh, it was called Cop with James Woods, and it was based on Blood on the Moon. He didn't like it very much, and I didn't either. And we talked about <laughs> that. And this was before he wrote LA Confidential. So I had met him, and it was kind of that thing of like, I was just starting out, and I wanted to see what a real writer looked like. And I knew he didn't, I didn't look like him. I didn't look like a real writer, but he looked like a real writer and talked like one. And, um, and then when LA Confidential got picked up by Warner Brothers to make a movie out of it, I desperately wanted that job and eventually got it along with Curtis Hansen, uh, the director. And um, when we were done with it, we sent it to Elroy and, I was, and we had uh, dinner with him at the Pacific Dining Car downtown. And I was terrified of what he would think. And, uh, but he's, you know, he said, it's my book, it's your movie, and, and go with God, so to speak. <laughs> um, but I stayed friends with him. And um, Did you like the movie? Uh, he liked it, and then he didn't like it. He's kind of mercurial. Yeah. And um, he, he, uh, he's an interesting guy that way. He, he very much supported it. Um, and kind of recently, he sort of, said he doesn't like it that much um which is his prerogative really so but i stay i'm still friends with him and um we I, we actually pitched la confidential too he and i um about hmm. three three years ago four years ago we came up with a whole thing set against when patty earth came down when the Sumini's liberation yeah. army came down to los angeles and and um and we got all the characters in there and uh we pitched it and we, we, we uh, couldn't get it going. It was ah. really depressing. Yeah. Well, so you, I'm, you, you shared, oh, just on, on, talking about the pitch, you shared a story about it, how the um, network executive um, fell asleep during your pitch. We, we, we pitched it a bunch of places. First of all, Warner Brothers passed, right? So Warner's made the movie. The original movie uh, are basically said, we don't make this kind of movie anymore. So that was fine. We had to get a note from them to go anywhere else. But we went to Netflix, and Elroy does the pitching, and he's a performance artist, basically. He's, when he talks about something, it's riveting. And he goes into this whole thing that he does, and it's, it's literally performance artists, like a one-man show, describing what the movie's going to be. And the executive fell asleep and uh, <laughs> just sort of nodded off. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, basically woke up again and you know he's like oh sorry I'm sorry I shouldn't uh, have, never take a pitch after lunch <laughs> and he's like where were you and Elroy was just kind of like well we were done we're done yeah <laughs> right right. I don't know I don't know where you are but we, we're done <laughs> so I, I I'm in the, the reason yeah. why I brought it up is that the ridiculousness of, of pitching to execs because I've done stuff like that I went to a movie. I went to a, a meeting once with Bu a, a company called Buna Murray. They produce a lot of reality stuff, which was, right. was what I was doing at the time. And they were eating their lunch. <laughs> it was a husband and wife, and they were eating their lunch while they were talking to me. So sometimes right. I couldn't understand what they were saying because they're chewing. <laughs> and there were, and I was there for a long time. But there were three three exact moments where I thought the meeting was over. And I went to get up, like, you know, like on what's right. my line, you know, am I about to get up and, you know, show that I'm the real person, you know? And, uh, and then they continued <laughs> talking and I was like, oh, oh, the meeting's not over. Okay. And they continue eating. And, you know, so I, I brought it up just because of the ridiculousness of, of what you had to go through, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And especially, you know, a sequel to something like that. You know, yeah, with, we, and, and you had the original the, actors too. I mean, it's we, crazy. And we and we had them committed. You know, they were. It was uh, Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe. Um, Kevin Spacey, of course, dies in the in the first movie. Yes, and we had him replaced with uh, Chad Bozeman, um, who I oh from wow 40, from forty two, oh. and his character in in the time we had set the story in that Symbionese Liberation Army in L.A. Uh, part of the story, Mayor Bradley had just been elected and he played uh, a, a young cop who worked for Mayor Bradley and uh, he was committed. And uh, we still, so we had Chad, Russell, and Guy. Wow. And we, couldn't, we couldn't 
even we couldn't get someone to just we'll we'll take a flyer and yeah. tell you to write a script and we'll see if we want to make it after that. So I used to own movie theaters um, and I had a big 10 screen art house in uh, Palm Springs and we were struggling. We were scrapping. And the movie that saved our asses was Mystic River. It did such big business. It's such an amazing movie. I'm a really big Dennis Lehane fan. I just finished his latest book, Small Mercies. You know, I'm curious about this. Why is Boston? Because I think about the Dennis Lehane stories, movies like The Town and The Departed. Why is Boston such a great storytelling landscape? You know, I don't, I think it's because it's so parochial in a way. Um, And it presents as this big, as this big kind of city on the East Coast, but it's about as big as a, as a acorn really. Hmm. And, uh, it's all these. It's all this sort of bad blood. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys, you know, as a, as a as a northeastern city. Everyone has a gripe and some axe to grind. And I always describe it as people. If, if you're so you're living in a in a tenement, and the people on the first floor hate the people on the second floor, hate the people on the third floor, but they all band together because we all hate the people who live next door to us. But we as a block will band together because we hate the block over there. And we as a neighborhood <laughs> will band together because we don't like that neighborhood. And we're all just, I, I'm making it sound grim, but it, but it makes for great characters and great, like no, nothing is ever over. The, the history is not, you know, probably someone's still griping because Paul Revere on his ride ran his horse over their lawn, you know, and they haven't forgotten it. You know, or their you know their grandparents passed the gripe down to them, and you know it's like it's why they turn on their sports team so quick. You know, it's yeah, like what, yeah. what have you done for me lately? I don't care how many <laughs> banners there are in Boston Garden, um, but it just it just makes for rich characters and, yeah. and uh, interesting uh, kind of. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, yeah, like no, it totally yeah. does. Totally. I, let yeah. me ask you a follow up on Mystic River. So, if if I think of the movie Mystic River, there's one particular scene that sticks in my head. It is the scene that is from shot on high, down at Sean Penn, as he's in this gigantic crowd and just wailing when he finds out his daughter is is the victim here. He, yeah, when he says, "Is that my daughter in there?" Yeah. So. Especially that shot down. Is that something that you wrote? Did you write write that as a point of view? Is that something Clint did? How did that work? No, I, I just write that he's complete because the police are trying to hold him back because he's trying to get onto the crime scene and he's got his he's got his brothers in law with him, the Savage Brothers. Yeah. So there's a big kind of offensive line of guys trying to get into the crime scene. So all these police are holding them back, and that's how it's described. And Clint you know, knowing always, no one knows where the camera belongs better than Clint Eastwood does. And knowing that that's the story you're trying to tell, if you're down sort of at eye level, you're just going to kind of see him through the middle of all that. So, you know, he realizes the camera needs to be up over it. So you see the mass of bodies and sort of everyone's back to us and, and Penn facing us. So we're focused on him. Um, yeah, but that's that's all him. The the writing is just uh, your writing is just amazing, and I, it's like there's no fat in your writing, you know, right? Like, and there's this one line that is so perfect, and it says so much with with saying so little. When the 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 boy who is dating the daughter who who died, um, he's being questioned down at the police uh, house, and. Uh, He's asked, um, do you remember, do you remember, what do you remember, what, what do you remember about your father? And he said he smelled like Schlitz and Dentine. Right. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's all that's you a, needed to know, to know who this guy was. Yeah. And that's a, that's a dentist. That's the dentist line. That's the dentist line. line. So all I did was identify that that's all you needed to say. Yeah. That's a, yeah. that's a dentist line. But like the funny thing is, is the, not to, I had done a previous film for Clint called Bloodwork. Yeah. It's a really was, underrated movie. Yeah, and he stars in it, and he, and uh, 
he, I, there's a scene where he crosses the street and he fires a shotgun at, at a car. And I thought to myself, when I was writing that scene, I thought, I'm, I have written a scene where Clint Eastwood is shooting at somebody. This is like the greatest writing <laughs> moment of my life. He's going he's gonna to be running across Ventura, Van Nuys Boulevard with a shotgun, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> but I finished that script and it was really short. And that the you know scripts are 120 pages, and that script was 94 pages. Hmm. And I thought, but that's I, I it, the, it was in there, and I couldn't think of what else to do with it. But I was nervous he was going to think I hadn't done my job, and I had to turn it in. And it's not you don't email a script to Clint Eastwood; you go to his office and yeah. hand it to him. And the whole time I was like, "This is he's going to just say, what is this? It's, you didn't do your job.'" And I hand him the script. And as I hand it to him, he picks, he takes, he has it in the palm of his hand and he starts to heft it, like weighing it in his hand. Like immediately I'm busted. I'm, my biggest fear has just come true. And he looks at me and he says, how long is this? And speaking of economy and having only to say a few words to get a point across. And I said, it's 94 pages, wincing. And he goes, 94 pages? He goes, it's already the best script I ever read in my life. Really? Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so a good lesson to learn about, you know, economy and, and things like that. It's interesting you say that because I wrote sitcoms for years. And I remember when I was uh, writing spec scripts, I was told that if it's not the right amount of pages, they won't even read it. Like right. they go, they'll go to the back and they'll look at the number on the last page. If it's 40 something, nope, too long. <laughs> and if it's 25, nope, too short, they right. won't even read it. Right, right. So, so yeah, the shorter so, the better for him. So I'm a, a really big Dodgers fan. I also do uh, a show every day on ESPN uh, here in LA. And we have referenced the movie 42 so many times on our show. It is such an unbelievably powerful film that captures Jackie Robinson and what he went through. Um, you wrote and directed that movie. Was that was that based on something or was that an original screenplay? Well, it's original in that it's not based on a book, but it's based on his life. On his and, life, yeah. And we didn't, I didn't invent anything in that. I mean, as far as even the at-bats in the movie are all real at-bats that he had. Um so and that Philadelphia manager was really an a-hole. Oh, yeah. We didn't, it was worse than, in real life, it was worse than, than what we showed. Um, Who played the manager? It was Alan Tudyk. Alan um, Tudyk. Yeah, boy, he was, yeah. a, he was a jerk. Who I had in, uh, in, Knight's, in Knight's Tale. He's, that's how I know Alan. He's, okay. He's the, yeah. he's, the nutty, he's the nutty guy from Knight's Tale. But the great resource that I had was I had Mrs. Robinson. Oh, uh, what I, a I, wonderful woman, Rachel! Yeah, I got the chance to meet her and interview her. She is such an elegant lady. Yeah, and she um, was kind of every step of the way on the script. I would show it to her, and she had notes and um, things like that. Um, so she was invaluable. Uh, she, you know, talked to Chadwick about her husband a lot, and mm. and, Ralph, and Ralph Branca was the other great resource because he was the only. Um, person i had access to who was on that team yeah and he was a he was a pallbearer at robinson's funeral so you knew they were friends right mm. um and he was um he was very very helpful and ralph branca of course best known yeah for giving yeah, up the shot heard around the world when i met him uh he had an insurance agency in uh rye new york and i went and talked to him and i asked him all these questions about robinson and at the end he looked at me and he goes, okay, so is there anything else you want to ask me? And I knew he meant that. <laughs> and I said, no, Mr. Branca, there's nothing else I want to ask you. And he was like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, but a great, a great, great guy. Great yeah. guy. And you worked with Chadwick Boseman, who was like, you know, like a comet gone uh, so he, soon, he, but what a legacy from... Uh, Jackie Robinson to Thurgood Marshall to uh, the Black Panther. What yeah. for, for you, what made him, and you obviously uh, have worked with him, had worked with him. Uh, what was he like? What made him such a special guy as an actor? Well, he was, he hadn't 
he didn't have a lot of screen time as a as a performer as, as, as for, on film. He had done a lot of plays and small plays and was a director himself. He had directed. Uh, he was. A, I think that was his major at Howard University was was theater directing. But he was he was ready. He was ready, and he had prepared himself. We, he, he looks younger than he is in, in the movie than he is in real life. When I think when we were shooting, he was 35 or 36 years old. And he just, he's, a, he's like Robinson in a way that he was, he was ready for the moment, should it arrive, and not knowing if it ever would arrive, to be a leading man in, in, a, in a film, which is a strange thing because he doesn't hardly have any parts at all, but that's how he saw himself. And that's what he was prepared for. And uh, I didn't, we just had to sort of take the slates off. But I didn't have to direct him. He knew, he knew what to do. He knew how to play it. And he was, he was ready for the moment. And the moment came one day and he grabbed, you know, he grabbed it by the throat and that was it. Yeah. Had, had he played baseball? I always wonder, you know, some, some actors, you know, are amazing athletes. So was it like spring training for him? I mean, yeah, he, no, he he um, he played little league baseball, but he was a basketball player, and had played a lot of point guard, and had played a lot of basketball, and had but actually had turned down some basketball scholarships to go to Howard for 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 theater, which was what he loved, and um, so he hadn't played baseball since he was ten or eleven, um, and he had an, he had enormously. Yeah, he had very long fingers, so great for a basketball, but 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 for a baseball, his hand just about wrapped. It was like holding a walnut in a way. Hmm. Um, so he had to uh, it made it. Uh, he had to sort of throw a certain way to release the ball, a certain way to control it. But he he we got uh, some. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. He was the basketball coach at Ventura College. Came and worked with. Chad three days a week and for months before we started um, and we had a Yankee former Yankee trainer who came and worked with him and just got him into into shape so he, you'd buy what you were seeing on screen such a great movie such a great yeah. movie um, listen Brian this has been uh, this has been great man um, amazing uh, career it's fun to look through it all with you thanks a lot for sharing some of it with us all right. No, great. Thanks for having me. I and uh, Brian's new movie is Finest Kind. It begins streaming on Paramount Plus on December the 15th. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. All right. Thank you both. There you have it. There's Brian Helgeland. Uh, the movie is really, really good. It is on Paramount Plus. You're going to like it. Um, and uh, what a career, man. What a, oh my God. Seriously, that guy. I mean, just LA Confidential alone. I know. I mean, I... I didn't know that he had written all these things, you know, and I, I've seen every almost everything that he's written, and yeah. completely forgot that it was him. Yeah, so. no, he's he is uh, a brilliant writer, and of course, Kat, we didn't. I I always like to know where people keep their Oscars, but I think it's so cheesy to ask. You think it's cheesy to ask? It depends who it is. Do you think Brian would have told us? Oh, he totally he totally would have told would us. He? I should ask. Yeah. What, what do you think? What do you think it is? Uh, well, I know for me, it'd be hood ornament. It would be a hood ornament. Hood ornament. I would be driving around. My Oscar would be right on the hood. So everybody knew right away. It'll be there for less than a day. <laughs> <laughs> Who took my Oscar? Okay. So I slept with an Oscar winner once. Don't um, want to say who it is at all. Do I want to say who it is? No, I don't want to say who it is. Well, you'll tell me off the air. But the Oscar was next to, on a nightstand next to the bed. Was it an actor, writer, or? Uh, no, no further clues. Oh, God. No further clues. Was it a one-night stand? Yeah. No, no, it wasn't. It went on for weeks. Oh. <laughs> went on for weeks. A many nightstand. Those were the days when weeks was a, like a long relationship for me. Oh you know God. how I was. <laughs> <laughs> weeks i was with him when i was uh, in junior high school i dated a kid for like a day a day yes were you going together for a day that was that was i the was thing, his girlfriend though. for a day do you remember like i'm going with somebody oh yeah well also i remember i remember when i went to summer camp um i was you know from nine to 15 
Yeah. So I had a boyfriend when I was like 10, you know, at summer camp. <laughs> and he had a fedora that he wore all the time. Of course he did. So he gave me his fedora. So that Ooh. was like, that took the place of like an ID bracelet. Yeah. Was that, was that yeah. like a big deal when you were a kid? Like a guys would give a girl their ID bracelet. And that meant that you What is an ID steady. bracelet? It's that chain. It's like a link uh, bracelet. And then it has a bar on the, on the front. And, um, and it has their name on it. And were you all wearing these? Because I've never heard of these. Girls didn't wear them. Boys wore them. Oh, okay. And they were called ID bracelets. When I was at Bowling Green in the fraternity, we would um, you'd get pinned. That was the thing. You'd exchange oh, wow. a pin. First, it was first it, you lavaliered, and they you gave them something for a lavalier, and then you gave them a pin, and that meant you're serious. And then all my friends got engaged too. I think God, I avoided that. Well. As a woman, you can always tell if a guy liked you, like if you had like a, what you appear to be like a one night stand or whatever. Yes. You can always tell by the t-shirt he gave you to go home with the next day. Really? If it was a nice t-shirt, like a t-shirt that he really liked right. and he gave it to you to wear. He wants it back. He wants it back. Yeah. And if you're wearing a ratty. If you have a ripped up, like, you know, something where he, where he went like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know you're then not coming you know, back. There's no way there's yeah. a second date. All right, there you have. It. That's a fun show. Fun mm -hmm. show today. Uh thanks to everybody who is watching. Thanks to everybody who is listening. Don't forget you should should subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh one of these shows comes out all the time. You can see the pictures that go along with the words on Spotify and on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh we appreciate all you guys. If you leave us a comment, on uh, leave us a five-star review on apple leave us uh, uh go ahead and write why you like the show same thing on youtube uh and send us an email afterwards we will send you a pop uh, culture pop podcast t-shirt and uh sue i still have one with your name on it i gotta well, drop this thing in the mail to you it's well, a nice hoodie i know and you know it's 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 hoodie weather it's now. hoodie what i i will i'll get it in the mail this week i promise okay. i promise uh okay. and by the way if you do uh, make a post or uh, a uh, comment a review uh you can uh, email us mace and sue at gmail.com uh, with your address and all that stuff and we will send you out a culture pop podcast t-shirt sue thank you very much and we will see everybody next time on the culture pop podcast mm -hmm.